Welcome to In That Case. My name's Joel Townsend and this is my podcast about important pieces of litigation which have helped to shape Australian public life. You can find previous episodes of the podcast on my website at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and you can find the podcast also on iTunes and on Stitcher and if you are on iTunes or Stitcher then please rate the podcast, leave a comment, help others to find it. You can find me on Twitter, my handle is at TownsendJoelC and through whatever means you find to communicate with me I'm happy to receive feedback, comments, questions, anything you wanted to pass on. So I wanted to talk to you today about some of the litigation carried out by Jeremy Jones who was for many years, who has been for many years, involved in the senior leadership of the Executive Council of Australian Jewry. And he's been involved in lots of litigation bearing on the operation of Section 18C of the Commonwealth Racial Discrimination Act. And in particular, uh, he has important things to say for the public debate that we're currently having and have been having for a number of years about the scope of 18C and whether it strikes the right balance between protecting people's interests, people who are at risk of uh, insult, vilification, harassment, and the rights to free speech of all Australians. So Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act provides that it's unlawful for a person to do an act otherwise than in private, if the act is reasonably likely in all the circumstances to offend, insult, humiliate or intimidate another person or group of people and that act is done because of the race, colour or national or ethnic origin of the other person or of some or all of the people in the group. That's the provision which was at stake in the very long-running case of Frederick Tobin. He was a man who ran a website called the Adelaide Institute, and that was a website which was engaged in what can only really be described as Holocaust denial. He described himself as somebody who was doing history, but it's interesting to read some of the communications uh, from Frederick Tobin and the Adelaide Institute in the course of the litigation and it's clear that there's a uh, deep and troubling anti-Semitic flavour to those communications. So he was running the uh, Adelaide Institute website which was engaged in Holocaust denial and uh, after the racial hatred provisions, section 18C in particular, um, we introduced uh, in, into the uh, Racial Discrimination Act in 1995, uh, Jeremy Jones, on behalf of the Executive Council of Australian Jury, made a complaint to the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission about Frederick Tobin's conduct. Uh, that in 1997 was referred for an inquiry because it couldn't be conciliated. There was no way that the parties could come to a common position. And in 2000, the complaint was found by Herriock to be substantiated. And then in 2001, an application was brought to the federal court to enforce uh, the 
inquiry, the finding of the inquiry made by the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission. A judgment of the Federal Court was handed down in 2002, finding in favour of uh, Jeremy Jones and finding that indeed there had been racial vilification. There was an appeal in 2003, but the matter ran on and on after that. Um, after continuing to operate the Adelaide Institute website, Frederick, Frederick Tobin gave an undertaking to the Federal Court in 2007 not to continue to post um, some specified offensive material and there were continued breaches of his undertaking to the court through 2007 and 8. And then in 2009, he was finally held in contempt of the federal court. He appealed against that finding, but he lost. So it was an incredibly long-running saga, and I haven't even touched on all of the twists and turns. But suffice to say, it's a case which captures something of the persistence of Holocaust denial, uh, something of the way in which Section 18C has been applied in practice and is one of a number of cases that Jeremy Jones and the Executive Council of Australian Jury were involved in. I've um, ex extracted some of the comments he made about some of the other cases they were involved in. I'm going to put together a shorter episode which um, gives you some of the flavour of those cases and I'll try to put that out pretty soon as well. So I started by talking to Jeremy Jones about his own personal background and how he came to be involved in these issues around Holocaust denial. I come from a family, a, a Jewish family that's been in Australia since the 1850s. So um, I had what you would say is probably quite a normal, unexceptional Australian upbringing. Um, knew a lot of people from all different backgrounds, uh, rugby league, tragic enjoy you know a lot of things that went on in life and uh when i was at university i got became quite involved in student politics on my university of sydney but i also became very involved in jewish student affairs and there was a national jewish organization called the australasian union of jewish students and i was elected to serve on its national executive having previously served on the national executive of the australian union of students so i was involved in public affairs and organizations which were pursuing particular interests. So AUS, it was the interest of students generally, or just Jewish students, which was both a Jewish agenda within the student movement and a student or youth agenda within the broader community. And through that latter involvement, I came into contact with the leadership of the uh, elected organizations of the Australian Jewish community, which in my state, New South Wales, the peak body is called the Jewish Board of Deputies, and they're affiliated to the national body, the Executive Council of Australian Jury. My, my father was also a vice president at one stage of the Board of Deputies. My three older sisters were all involved in campus politics. My mother got involved a little bit. So I came from a background where we, we used to be involved in things outside uh, personal interests and even outside sort of perhaps standard hobbies and sports or whatever. And um, I got myself elected to the Board of Deputies in New South Wales, which uh, consists half the delegates represent organisations, the other half from a ballot in the Jewish community. And once I was on that, I was eligible to stand as a candidate for one of the delegates from the state body to be on the Executive Council of the Australian Jury. And because I was very interested in national affairs, probably more so than state affairs, um, I contested an election. I was elected and found myself on the national body. 
And the president of that body at the time, a man called Leslie Kaplan, uh, asked me to be honorary secretary, which was the equivalent, I suppose, of an executive director in these days because we didn't have any of our own full-time staff. We depended on other Jewish organizations to help us out. So the president and the honorary secretary were really like a leadership team. And uh, from that start, uh, that was in 1989, from that start, I worked with a number of presidents in the position of uh, national vice president or uh, executive vice president or honorary secretary working with the presidents and uh, became the person who, in a sense, became the go-to person on anti-Semitism and racism generally. One of the aspects I was involved in was anti-Semitism and racism. So that put me in a key position within the Executive Council of the Australian Jury to be involved in all the discussions which led to the eventual adoption of the law, which is uh, Sections 18C and 18D of the uh, racial, uh, of the, uh, racial, discrimina- racial Discrimination Act, which were the Racial Hatred Act, the Racial Hatred Provisions. So I was quite involved in the, the debate and taking part in all the discussions between the Federation of Ethnic Communities Councils, which played a very important role, the Jewish community, many other organisations, and found myself in the position of honorary secretary of the Executive Council of Australian Jury when this law came in. So I was sitting there in the council in this position, and uh, we, to uh, our surprise, I suppose, because there's been so many years of negotiations and discussions, the government enacted the law and gazetted the law, and we found ourselves for the first time in uh, 1996 in a position where if somebody reported to a Jewish community body that they had been subjected to any of the actions outlined in 18C, that we wouldn't just have to say, well, we'll do our best to win the battle for public opinion and we'll get the condemnations. We had law in place. And there I was sitting as Honorary Secretary when the law came in. There was some people who, when they encounter the idea of Holocaust denial, think, or because sometimes people involved in it call it Holocaust revisionism, think they're doing something like legitimate historical revisionism. A legitimate, a legitimate historical revisionist will look at historic events, look at the way they've been interpreted, and come across with a new interpretation, perhaps based on new information, perhaps based on an insight they've developed themselves, but it's very legitimate. That's how the study, the academic study of history, and I, that was my uh, university background, an academic historian, that's how you progress. You look at the information, these are the facts, what would explain them? What can we learn from them? What's a different way of understanding the origins of the Second World War? What's a different way of understanding the establishment of modern colonial Australia? What is a different way of understanding relations historically between uh, Holland and uh, Belgium? You know, that's what you do. But this is not about history, the revisionism, as they call themselves. This is about Jews. And just to give you uh, what I find is one of the most stunning examples, I was at a conference on the prevention of genocide in, in Sweden some years ago, and one of the panels was discussing apologia and propaganda, and uh, a number, an, amongst the speakers was somebody who had done studies into Holocaust denial and Holocaust revisionism, as they called themselves, and gave quite an interesting background presentation about how they operated and its impact for educators. And a man stood up who was a representative of Roma and Sinti groups. He was an academic, but not, not a historian, but an academic, a very serious person. And he said, 
you know, the Holocaust deniers never deny the genocide of Sinti and Roma. They just don't do it. It's not on their radar. And that's because we're written out of history, to which others there present, including myself, said, no, it's not about you being written out of history. It's about the fact that these people are only interested in, in their eyes, saving the world from Jews or stopping Jewish people having any say. They don't care about other people. They're not really a focus of their activity. The Tobin case was uh, something which went on for a very long time. And the simple matter is this. Frederick Tobin had been involved in... uh, Probably the best way to put it is apologia for Nazism. At the level of Holocaust denial, couldn't say exactly where it was for a few years. But then, after the law had already come into effect, he took out an advertisement in the Australian newspaper encouraging people who wanted to know the truth, as he put it, about uh, the Germans in the Second World War to uh, go to a particular address. And within, I would say, 24 hours of that going in, my phone was flooded with calls from people who said they went to the site and it said Auschwitz had swimming pools. It was like a holiday resort. And there was other material basically claiming that there'd never been a Nazi uh, Holocaust. The Jews had basically invented this so that they could extort guilt and money and sympathy and political advantage, whatever, from the rest of the world. Now, forget the fact that the level of conspiracy that would have been required for even a, a millionth of what was found in these pages have been true is just mind-boggling. Uh, there, was just, there were just pages and pages of this that were available to anybody. Uh, and you can imagine how many people felt, particularly within the Jewish community, uh, who could be offended under the Racial Hatred Act, but many others were offended just as decent human beings. But given the concern within the Jewish community and members of the Jewish community, again, the Executive Council of Australian Jewry, a committee of management, considered the complaint. And because it had been established that I personally had standing under the law, the complaint went in my name so that we didn't have to go through establishing anybody else's standing. And it became a matter where I was pursuing it. And it was, first of all, in those days, the the complaint went to the uh, Human Rights Commission, to a hearing commissioner. And the hearing itself was quite a, uh, a difficult uh, position because we really had to, again, go through material, quite detailed material, and say which bits we objected to when it was a holistic objection, in a sense, to somebody who was making this claim about a conspiracy. So if you have uh, pages which say uh, it was a sunny day in uh, Woods or it was snowing that day in Warsaw, uh, yet we couldn't complain about those words, but we could about the words each side of them, which were alleging the Jews or their collaborators were doing something uh, misleading. So it, it was really, uh, again, not as, straight, as straightforward as one would hope with some of these situations. But basically, we went to the hearing, and uh, Frederick Tobin said he wanted to make a speech about history, at the hearing, and he was told by the commissioner, no, this was about the complaint that we had lodged, whether it breached the Racial Hatred Act or not. So he walked out claiming that, you know, he couldn't get a fair hearing or this is not what he'd come for. Frederick Tobin 
was operating a website called the Adelaide Institute, and most of the material was only in the online form, but there was a, a huge amount of material. So he had basically had three um, allegations or statements, three planks. One was that there wasn't a Nazi genocide, but Jews had invented this in a, as an attempt to extort money, guilt, advantage, etc., from others. The second was that there was never a Russian revolution. What happened is a group of Jews had taken over Russia and enslaved the people uh, using a, an old, even pre-Nazi classic, but certainly a, a Nazi classic, claiming Jews and Bolsheviks were the same thing, which would uh, be uh, news to virtually every Jew and every Bolshevik. And then uh, the third plank was that Jewish religious teaching or uh, a part of uh, Jew uh, Jewish under attempts to understand uh, the uh, word of God through the Bible is called the Talmud. The, and in the books of the Talmud, and it's a, a, quite a number of volumes, it's a very serious academic work, it has contributions from scholars over the centuries. Um, Frederick Tobin on his website claimed that Jewish people behaved in a certain way, a bad way, because they were all guided by the Talmud. Now, again, I have no issue having a sensible discussion about the Talmud or Jewish law or what Jews believe or whatever, but this wasn't about a, a, an intelligent conversation. This was to build up some not only a conspiracy theory about Jews seeking political advantage, but almost a mystical, supernatural power at work guiding Jews to behave in a way which was existentially opposed to society's interests. And one of the classic examples he used was um, former US Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. Now, Madeleine Albright didn't even know she was Jewish until quite late in life. She discovered her family history. Yet, for Frederick Tobin, she was somehow guided by the Talmud, which is religious teaching that most people who live lives fully as religious Jews would not know all that much about in detail. So this, these were all, so it was not, it was not about history. It wasn't about just the second world war. It was a vision about Jews and Jewish attitudes and how bad Jews are altogether. Uh, when the judgment did come out, we were found again to be, uh, to have our complaints substantiated. clear when you read through these cases that Frederick Tobin was at least at times representing himself and I asked Jeremy Jones to tell me a little about how it came to be that Frederick Tobin was in this position and what the background was in terms of his legal representation. Now with Frederick Tobin at different times he had, uh, he had uh, barristers of the level of Clive Evatt. We weren't talking about somebody who was only uh, representing themselves, and we're talking about somebody who came, uh, who tried to do their best under the law. But the trouble is, if you went to, uh, if you look at some of these cases, and if you were a, a reasonable lawyer, in many of the cases, you would say, listen, mate, what you've done is something wrong. Let's minimize it, or let's plead uh, mental incompetence, or let's try something else, because uh, the facts the evidence before the court is going to lead to a finding against you. Now, I can't put myself exactly in the, in the shoes of some of the people that we're talking about because I have cases beyond the two you have mentioned. But uh, in most of these cases, you can imagine a person saying, I'm not going to go in front of the court and say that I 
was mentally incompetent, or I'm not going to say I made an error. I'm going to, at the very best, apologize as somebody took offense. Not that I offended them. I'm sorry if they took offense. And that's that because you're dealing with the egos and the people. So it wasn't necessarily the legal representation. That they were given the opportunity to have the best lawyers, or I should say, or, or get decent legal representation. The other thing that happens in court cases, which was interesting for me as a civilian, if that's a correct term as against a lawyer, uh, was you find that barristers, certainly, and sometimes lawyers, but I was, it was often at barrister level, would assist the other side in making sure the legal processes were followed properly. So they would say, oh, well, you have the opportunity of this law or whatever, or you could look at it in this direction. And it actually was a genuine attempt to make sure that you minimize the, first of all, you maximize the chances of the right thing being done, but you also minimize the chance of an appeal coming coming out because of some... Uh, uh, lack of uh, the legal processes being followed pr appropriately. After we won both the Scully case and the Tobin case at the Human Rights Commission, we then had to take them to the federal court due to change in legislation. We won the case, as I said, with Olga Scully in the federal court, and then we had the Tobin case. And we had a victory in the first case. He appealed it, so we went to the full bench. We won there. But then what we found is he was doing a number of things to try and um, avoid the order of the court that he ceased being engaged in this activity. So one of the things he did is he put blackout over the text on his website. So if you put your highlighter, you could still read it. But if he just printed it out, all you would say is it's covered up. So that was hardly removing the text. And then he would put in new documents, which might not be identical, but certainly were very, very close and, in, and, and contained material, which had we complained, would have been the subject of a complaint. So after a period of time, uh, we decided, again, as Executive Counsel of the Australian Jury, I was not doing these as individuals, although I had a lot of time and personal involvement. There were a team of people making decisions and many people doing their utmost to make sure that we maximise our chances of success under quite difficult legislation, uh, we determined that we should take this on a matter of... Uh, we should complain to the courts about contempt of court. And we decided that it was easy, easy, to find 144 examples of contempt. Not one, not 12, but 12 times 12. It seemed to be a nice round number. And we took 144 breaches of the court orders to the federal court and he was found to have acted uh, uh, I think the word was contumacious contempt and uh, ended up serving a brief period in jail but that was not because of the holocaust denial it was because of the contempt of court somebody else took over the running of the Adelaide Institute and while uh, some of the material was similar it wasn't identical and all, in a sense, the most important things had already been done. The courts in Australia had found that the online medium was covered by the law, which is quite important. It wasn't known until this case. Secondly, it had been determined that the Holocaust denial, or certainly the form in which Frederick Tobin did it, was, to be, was a form of anti-Semitism, and that anti-Semitism was a form of racism, so we knew that was covered by the law. If there had not been a finding on that ground, we would have been wondering how does the law really... Uh, achieve anywhere near its purpose. So we had those findings and we had 
the well-known situation now that Frederick Tobin and the Adelaide Institute had been found to be places where the material was in contempt, first in contempt in the moral sense of Australian law, and secondly, legally, he had been somebody who had been in contempt of Australian court with his actions. So instead of being part of a body of information available to anybody curious about these subjects, the name the Adelaide Institute, the name Frederick Tobin, the material it contained became known quite openly as racist material or material in breach of the Racist Hatred Act. So that important principle was established. And Frederick Tobin had his other problems. I mean, he went to, he went to court, to jail, and wasn't made into a martyr by everybody else, who he had imagined would suddenly say, here is a hero for our far-right-wing cause or a pretend hero for free speech. He found he was somebody who was treated as somebody who had been uh, unable to sustain a reasonable argument and be exposed as a racist. There was even an article in one of the magazines by the quite notorious writer in England who suffered similarly when his historical expertise was put on the rat, that being David Irving. David Irving at one stage said Frederick Tobin was a person who brought Holocaust deniers into disrepute, which sounds like quite a... Uh, interesting commentary. So, uh, well, Holocaust revisionists into disrepute, but it's, it was just interesting. So Frederick Tobin did not, did not become the hero, had a series of problems because then uh, he was involved in other cases where some people had made comments about him, which he believed were defamatory, and he took legal action. He sued me again at one stage, claiming that I had said something again, which was outside the law, and he lost these cases, so he was constantly incurring more debts. Uh, to pay the costs of uh, his court cases, which were, you could argue, destined to lose because it was in the wrong in these in these cases. So uh, his activities were restricted because of that. But I must say, latterly, in the very recent period, he seems to be putting his head about above the water a little bit more. But his racism is so palpable, it's laughable. I mean, there's a difference when you do something which purports to be... Uh, interesting, true historical research, and when you just carry on like somebody who appears to uh, have uh, lost the plot completely when it comes to talking about human beings. How I personally found it, I devoted a huge amount of my life. I mean, I look at the number of days uh, where I would do nothing else except go through this material uh, because... The other people in the first instance have been upset and offended by it, but I think any decent human being, including me, would be very concerned by this material which was telling other people that because you happen to be born Jewish, not even to do with religion, but because you were Jewish, somehow you were the existential enemy of humanity. Or in the Olga Scully case, whatever the social ill is, you could develop a template which had Jews behind it. And this, is, this was pretty awful stuff to have to deal with, just to read it and go through. Then there were the hours and hours of making sure that every a letter of every word was accurate in any complaint. Uh, I worked, I had sometimes student volunteers who would help go through and sort the material, which was wonderful. I had many different lawyers and barristers who offered their services to help with some of the material, and they all were terrific helps. But personally, for me, I would have said, uh, there, it basically, there were times where this seemed to be my life. I mean, I do have a family. I, I do like to think I have a life outside work, but
but my life outside work for many block periods was dealing specifically with trying to make sure that the community, first in Tasmania with the Scully case, then nationally and internationally with the Tobin case, uh, had some recourse against the people who were choosing to create an atmosphere of hostility towards the Jewish community. So that was quite trying. And there were also other incidents during the time period where I was fortunate. I mean, people didn't necessarily know where I lived, but somebody else called Jay Jones in the phone book who lived quite close to me had racist Holocaust denial material uh, papered and, and vandalized. Their yeah, home was vandalized with this material. It wasn't me, but it's pretty sure everybody was pretty sure it was likely to be me. And there were examples of letters coming to uh, private addresses, again, of Jay Jones's, uh, of Holocaust denial material, which could be very upsetting to the recipients. I received occasional phone calls and think that wasn't so bad. And I've got, a, I've got a pretty thick skin. But when I dealt with the people who were the inadvertent recipients of hatred directed at me, that was pretty testing. But uh, it's also, you know, it's, it was difficult work in the sense that although I did part of a law degree at university, I'm not a lawyer, and lawyers and courts don't necessarily work on the same, same timetables and same schedules and same organizational ways as other occupations. And I had to find myself, you know, thinking to that schedule as well as my own. And, you know, sometimes we had days where we would have a directions hearing where Frederick Tobin might say, here are a hundred witnesses I want to bring in my defense. And we would spend days on the phone because these were done by phone conference often explaining one after the other why a particular witness didn't have expertise, why a certain thing shouldn't be accepted, why we didn't object on this ground, why we didn't on the other. So there was a huge amount beyond just the direct stuff that people might have seen in the court. So it was physically exhausting and it was mentally exhausting, but I think everybody involved in the, the case from the Jewish community side and the lawyers who were not Jewish who, who also helped us, they, uh, they believed and we believed we were doing something which was uh, intrinsically valuable the uh, multicultural, uh, tolerant aspects of Australia that we want promoted and that we believe are so important. The challenges of public expressions of anti-Semitism have, of course, lasted beyond the conclusion of the Frederick Tobin case. And indeed, there are particular challenges about the way in which social media provides an opportunity for anti-Semitic views to be disseminated and given expression to. Jeremy Jones, talk to me a little bit about those issues. Uh, when it comes to the question of how they are today, I think the world, is, the world constantly changes in this area. The hatred doesn't go away. There's no question that there'd be at least as many people who have bizarre anti-Jewish beliefs as there were 20 years ago, 40 years ago, and there will be in 50 years. These people are there. The question is what megaphones, what audiences they have, what reach, what other noise there is, where they might be drowned out. And I think what, what we've, and also who is, you know, hiding beneath the surface. Because one thing that uh, we've found, that I found in, far too many years now of dealing with these issues, is most of the loudmouth racists, and by this I include anti-Jewish racists or anti-Semites, 
they're basically cowards. They don't want to confront something that they think is as big or as tough or as strong as they are. So they're happy to bully Jews. They're happy to bully refugees. They're happy to bully Indigenous Australians until there might be some consequences in their actions. And the whole logic of having anti-racist legislation, the philosophical logic, is saying that it's not a situation of having a racist and a victim of racists and the rest of you are spectators. It's a matter of saying you have a racist and the rest of you are against that person because that society says racism does not belong there. You change a template. You have loud, assertive voices. I, do, I, I know that uh, the current, at the time that we're having this conversation, the Race Discrimination Commissioner has finished his term of office and nobody has been publicly announced as a replacement. I'm not in a position to know whether there is going to be anybody or what they'll be doing, but having somebody in that position who is articulate and strong can be an important way of fighting racism. There, we, we didn't always have voices and haven't always had people in that area. Having some case law as background has made it much easier to deal with people when they do put their heads above the water and express some of these views. But it has not been uh, uh, satisfactorily uh, satisfactory in dealing with all the problems because if you understand, and I, I know you do, but people listening to this understand how much work can go into something which might appear on the face of it to be a lay-down misere. Somebody comes up and says, Jews are responsible for all social evils. You think, great, you know, somebody can complain. There'll be a successful complaint, it'll be over. Without realising that you have a complaint, there's a chance to respond. Do you go to a conciliation? Do you go to court? When you go to court, will you have one judge? Will it then be appealed? Will there then be another appeal? What will go on? And it's, it can be very wearying and very tiring. So establishing the precedence to this stage has been important in making that a little less difficult than it might, it might have been otherwise. One of the big challenges in dealing with racism, and it's not a legal challenge, is that when most people seem to be getting the majority of their information from the mainstream media or from schools, then you knew where you could put your energies into providing information which helps people make some sort of accurate judgments and assessments. These days, anybody can go anywhere on social media or uh, be fed any garbage without the faintest idea of whether the source that they're relying on is something that should be relied on and can come out with a complete misunderstanding, not just of Jews, not just on racist issues, on any issues. How do you address that? Certainly the law may help a little bit if there's publicity given to a judgment which says why something has been regarded as being outside the bounds of legal discussion of important, um, important public affairs matters. But... Uh, there are obviously many other things that need to be done if you're going to pursue that particular battle successfully. As you might imagine, Jeremy Jones is a defender of the retention of Section 18C, the retention of the law prohibiting uh, acts constituting racial vilification. He talks about the importance of Section 18C as a means for minority groups to obtain a remedy for the acts of racial vilification against them. Now, during the discussion of 18C, for me, the most important issue was always what recourse are victims of racism going to have? What protections are there going to be? 
what is going to be the ability of somebody to have faith in their country, in Australia, to say Australia does not include the tolerance of racial vilification, harassment, intimidation, deliberate offence, etc., as civil comment. Now, none of the suggested amendments that I saw uh, to 18C really would have done that job. And I was quite unconvinced by any of the other suggestions, uh, particularly by the suggestion that this was somehow a major restriction on free speech. There can be serious questions about the administration. There can be questions about process. But there were also questions that were raised in this 18C debate, which to my mind were... Uh, May not only distractions, but when you looked at them for a few seconds, you see how weak they were. So some of the complaints in 18C is there were people who had lodged complaints. It had been very difficult for the other party. And then the complaint had failed. Therefore, there were, we shouldn't have the law. Now, the closest equivalent I can think of is defamation law. I've been, I've, I write, I write as a, for a living. And I have had people complain that I have defamed them, including lodging court cases against me for defamation. They haven't been successful, and I hope I never actually defame somebody. I don't want to win cases because I you know, play some legal trick. But, you know, I don't intentionally defame anybody. But people lodge a complaint, and I can tell you, if you're the defendant in these cases, they can be very emotionally and physically and economically and every other way draining. But do we think it would be a good world if anybody could say anything about anybody, including destroying their reputation, their character, their business, whatever else, and they didn't have any legal recourse? I don't think most people would agree with that proposition. So why should you be able to do it in the big picture about groups of people uh, and not do it about an individual? So this is why 18C became important in just extending the logic of saying that you cannot take away the human rights and the standing and the dignity of other human beings without being subject to some form of uh, consequences. Uh, this morning I was at an, a celebration of the Muslim festival of Eid. There were 2,400 people at this particular celebration and the natural, it was natural that they invited a Jewish speaker as well as Christian, Hindu and Sikh speakers at this particular event. And in Australia, you found many people of different religious backgrounds. Most natural thing we would do was talk about how we can together combat racism. This was seen as something, you know, very, very important, but also in a warm way. It wasn't a meeting. It was just a coming together of people who say, you know, we, Australia's got uh, the potential to be much better than it is in many ways. How can we do it together completely in the knowledge that racism and racial discrimination are harmful to the interests of our country? So that's, that's the reality of a lot of Australia. And if we look at the number of people there, that's roughly more than a thousand times more people than voted for Fraser Anning in first preferences in that one place at that time. And so, you know, where Fraser Anning's coming from and what that means is a, an interesting question. But I, I think we also have to be appreciative of many different groups of people and forces and within Australian society moving in different directions, some positive as well as the negative. With the Frederick Tobin case, it meant that people living in Australia would have the understanding that if somebody was going to claim that there was some Jewish conspiracy to extort money, guilt, political advantage, etc., you didn't have to put up with it. 
you didn't have to go into a, a public uh, forum and debate them. It wasn't going to be the next uh, discussion on the 7.30 report or whatever it might be. It was it's something that had been sorted out within the courts, and you would know that even though these people existed, there could be consequences for them. Thanks for joining me for this episode of In That Case. It's been great to take you through a little of the epic journey of the litigation involving Jeremy Jones and Frederick Tobin. I hope that that sheds some light on the background Section 18C and gives you some context for that important and, as I say, long-running public debate. Once again, you can find past episodes of the podcast on the website, www.inthatcasepodcast.com. You can find it also on iTunes and on Stitcher. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Townsend Joel C. I'll look forward to joining you again for the next episode of In That Case. Mm-hmm.